I am Marlon Jones, the Career Skills Architect, and this is View from the Big Chair Podcast, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. Today's episode, we have as our guest, Becca Hubbard. And I met Becca when she was a student intern at the University of South Carolina. So I've been able to watch her career grow and prosper. Becca started out in academics, and I know a lot of our listeners are looking at academic advising as a career. So she has a lot of information that she can share with you. Thank you for joining us today, Becca. Thank you, Marlon. Thank you to, to be here and to uh, reconnect and get to, to share some info with your listeners. Now, let our listeners know how you developed your love for sports. Yeah, so it really has started early in my life. So I played, I started playing soccer when I was maybe five. I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't playing sports. So um, I started with soccer and then played one season of softball, but it was not enough action for me. And so um, stuck with soccer and then uh, in middle school, got into basketball and continued with that for a long time. And um, in high school, started playing volleyball. So I was constantly playing all the sports. Um, I have two of the greatest humans ever created as my parents, and they invested in my love of sports and encouraged me um, to participate at every turn. And so, um, and even beyond the participation part, um, you know, I, I grew up near Atlanta. And so we would have a lot of sporting events that would come through town. Obviously, I grew up a huge Atlanta Braves fan. Um, and so we would go to those games, but even local colleges and universities, we would go to camps that they would would have or um, when large scale events would come through Atlanta, we wouldn't necessarily go to the final four or go to, um, you know, national championships or, you know, whatever the case was, but we would go to the fan fest where there was just a lot of energy around those different events. And it would just, uh, you know, it just really um, kind of got in in my blood that I loved athletics and always wanted to be around it, um, whether participating or um, through working. And how did you work in sports in college? Um, so I really, um, you know, so in high school, I thought that I really wanted to be an athletic trainer. I had an internship with a, a professional women's basketball team as a student athletic trainer. And um, I thought that was going to be my path. But then I quickly discovered that I did not handle it well when body parts were not facing the right direction or or um, didn't look like they were supposed to. And so that did not last very long. And so, um, but when I was at Georgia, um, 
I, I knew that I, I loved college athletics. I had been um, a basketball player at a division two school for a couple of years. And so I just, I loved college athletics always had. And so when I um, got to school at Georgia, I wanted to work any and everywhere that I could. So um, I worked in development. I worked in marketing. I worked in basketball camps. Um, I was a volunteer coordinator for the women's final four. I interned with the peach bowl. I mean, I did literally anything that would come through Athens or the Atlanta area, even a little bit beyond that, um, local events. I would just, I just wanted to get experience and be able to make connections. And, um, so that's kind of where it started. And then, um, when I was in grad school, a friend of mine was working at the Academic Center for Student Athletes on Georgia's campus, and um, they had a position come open for um, someone who would monitor study hall. And so I um, applied. I loved it. And that really started my um, official career, I guess, in the academics um, within athletics is um, being a study hall monitor. <laughs> How about that? Now, just walk our listeners a little through your career journey from study hall monitor to your current position. And what is your current title? So my current title is the, the Director of Retention and Student Success at LSU, Louisiana State University. Um, so, yeah, so when I was in school at Georgia, I, um, you know, started, that's where I started working in the Academic Center for Student Athletes. I loved it. Um, and that's where I, I thought that I wanted to stay. And so I started um outreaching to different schools to get an internship. I had to have an internship to finish up my um, master's program at Georgia, <clears throat> excuse me. And so I um, got the internship at South Carolina. I worked with um, an incredible human named um, Colin Crick, um, who was the life skills coordinator, but he also was the academic advisor for, um, I believe it was six um, teams. And so worked with Colin for a year and then um, got a job at Ohio University I was a life skills coordinator and an academic advisor. Um, I think I worked with um, a few teams there. I was there for two and a half years and then had the opportunity to go to um, the Ohio State University, where um, I was, again, life skills coordinator and um, academic advisor. Um, but I was only there for a little bit over a year um, and then had the opportunity to come open at LSU. And so I, um, when I came to LSU, I was specifically hired to work with the baseball team as an as their academic advisor and um added swimming and diving teams um a few uh, months after I got to LSU and so I I served in that role for seven years I had some responsibilities that that changed during that time but both mostly academic advisor for student athletes for seven years um, then had the opportunity to move over to enrollment management and really the admission side of things um, as our certification officer. And so um, this was a much more administrative role that um, allowed me to work with all of the teams at LSU. Um, so, and then um, I served exclusively in that role for about three and a half years. And then I was um, hired as our first director of retention and student success at LSU. Um, I still have my 
responsibilities as our certification officer, but this is an opportunity um, really to take the mechanisms of support that we have in place for student athletes and to implement those for our entire student body. And so it is, um, it's been a great transition and to be at a place right now with our new president who is, um, and, and an administration that is investing in student success broadly across our campus is, is really exciting. That's great. Now, for our listeners, can you describe the process you went through to get that first full-time internship? Yeah, so I knew that um, I knew that my master's program required an internship, and so really started looking um, about six months out, maybe longer than that, um, from when I wanted the start date to be. And this was really before email was <laughs> a big thing, and so. I basically mailed unsolicited cover letters and resumes to any and every school that I thought was even viable for me to work at. And so I just, I started mailing out letters to people that that worked in academic services at various colleges and universities. And so, um, you know, I had few calls for interviews. Um, but one day got a call from actually one of your previous podcast guests, Dr. Jason Pappas. Yes. So um, Pav called me and he was um, obviously an academic advisor at, at South Carolina at the time. And he was coming to Athens for um, a men's basketball game. And he said, you know, I got your letter. I'm going to be in town and um, would love for us to go to lunch or dinner, you know, meet before or after the game and, um, you know, get a chance to interview you. And so I, um, I met with him, we had a great lunch and, um, he was like, you know, I like the direction that this is going. Um, he thought that the position really wouldn't be working with him as much as it was working with, um, Colin Crick, who I, I didn't know at that point, but he was like, you know, can you come to Columbia, um, meet with Colin and interview with our team. And so I did a couple of weeks later, came over to Columbia and interviewed with Colin and, um, got the got the position shortly thereafter. So Carolina was such a good fit. I loved, you know, that I could continue to be in the SEC. I was only about three hours from home, which was um, a great, great fit at the time. And um, obviously, professionally, it was a wonderful opportunity to to get involved. Now, explain to our listeners what an academic coordinator does for student athletes and for the athletic department. Yeah, so that role, um, it's really responsible for ensuring that student athletes are making progress toward their degree. <laughs> so part of that is monitoring the eligibility benchmarks um, set by the NCAA and or the conference, um, that students are taking the right courses um, to meet or hopefully exceed those standards. But that also includes making this students, making sure the students are um, taking classes that fit around their practice times. We want them to be able to um, still practice and compete and not have to choose between going to class or practice or anything like that. So want them to be able to do both. Um, and then also that they have the resources that they need to be successful in their classes. So those academic advisors will often, you know, set up um, subject-specific tutoring or um, even mentoring. So um, I know it's called different things at different schools, but um, with people who can 
teach study skills and make sure that that students are are getting their assignments done or if they have questions about assignments that they're that they have an opportunity to ask those um, certainly monitoring study hall I monitored study hall from my first job up until <laughs> when I was an academic advisor so um, the whole time and then um, I think one of the unique things is getting to travel with teams to hold um, you know study hall on the road you know depending on the sport sometimes students can miss a significant period of time um, of their classes and so to be able to to um, maintain that continuity of of making progress in their classes is important and so you know I think from the athletic department standpoint um, just to know that somebody is is overseeing that part of the student athlete experience is so important I think you know our mission as universities is to educate students. And so athletics is a huge part of what students are doing, the student athletes are doing when they come to um, colleges and universities, but the ultimate goal is to graduate students as well. We want students to earn a degree and win championships. Exactly. We want want both, we want both. And so, um, you know, from the departmental side to know that that part is being overseen and and cared for is is really important. Now there's also, this thing called CHAMPS Life Skills. What do those court daters do? Yeah, so um, so the CHAMPS Life Skills program it, uh, is really, um, I think the work is still happening. The the program moniker, you'll still see, still see CHAMPS Life Skills a lot of places, but it's really in the last couple of years transitioned to where the NCAA doesn't have as much oversight in it anymore to where N4A, which is a professional organization for academic advisors and professional development um, personnel and athletics um, kind of go into that. And so they really have the oversight, but you know, it's easy for students to get wrapped up in, in only the athletic and the academic pieces of life and um, too often you know students were were saying that they they weren't having opportunities to get involved in the community or to prepare themselves for life after sports and so that's really what the um, champs life skills personnel would do is to really work on um, students life off of the field so personal development programming for students career development programming um, certainly getting out into the community and doing community service um, programming those are kind of the core pieces Um, And then overseeing the Student Athlete Advisory Committee. I know that was something as a life skills coordinator that I always did, um, most commonly referred to as SAC. And um, SAC has representatives from each of the um, athletic teams and then administrators who oversee it, who are really working for the betterment of the student athlete experience. And so um, I would say those those are the big things that they do. What top three skill sets should aspiring academic coordinators develop? to help them be competitive for jobs? That's a that's a really great question. And I think, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, not necessarily as a skill to be developed, but I think that you will not be successful if you don't have a heart to serve students. You have to sincerely and genuinely want students to succeed, to be willing to go above and beyond to assist them in breaking down barriers that may exist, whether real or perceived, anything that stands in the way of a student's success. Um, you know, and I, 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 I don't want to say that can't be developed, but I think that is just absolutely crucial um, to have in a role where you're working so closely with students. 
Um, the second thing is uh, communication skills. Um, to be able to effectively communicate both verbally and in written form, I think will serve you well throughout your entire career. And you know, when I think about this particular um, position or role, um, you know, you're you're communicating with a lot of different constituents. You've got student athletes, coaches, administrators faculty, um, you know, that you're all you're you're communicating with. And sometimes the way you communicate with those different populations is different. And so, um, you know, I think that that being able to um, communicate effectively is, is really crucial. Um, and the final thing, I think people have to be adaptable and nimble and cannot get caught up in this is the way we've done it. And this is the way we're going to do it. Um, our world changes quickly. Our students change quickly. Um, and we have to be able to grow and adapt with them. And so if we get too comfortable in how we do the work, um, we are going to lose every single time. And so we have to be able to meet the needs of the students that we're serving um, and the different constituents. And so being able to be nimble and adaptable to whatever changes come our way is, is crucial. Versatility. Yes. Now, what are the job duties of the athletic certification officer? Yeah, so I um, so in that role, I am handling really the admission and the eligibility of all of our student athletes at LSU. So um, monitoring the initial eligibility and the continuing eligibility for all of our student athletes. So, um, you know, being housed here in enrollment management, I have a position basically in admissions um, and people who work with me who we solely work on evaluating um, both high school and transfer transcripts for all of the recruits that we're looking at for LSU. So obviously we are, we recruit many more people than we end up signing, whether that's we decide we're, we don't want them anymore, or they decide they're not coming to LSU. Um, so we evaluate hundreds more students each year than we're, than we actually um, will sign, but we all, we have to evaluate all of them to see what the likelihood is that they will be eligible and, and and if they can come to LSU. And so with each of those evaluations, we're communicating to coaches, academic advisors, and compliance about the admission status of those students. Um, and then for currently enrolled students, we're tracking the eligibility benchmarks for them and making sure that we're proactive in identifying any issues that may exist um, or that we think could arise for, for students. Um, and then working closely with the coaches and administrators compliance to make sure that we're notifying um, all of those parties in the case of an eligibility status change. And so um, certainly involved in that is working closely with academic advisors, both in the Academic Center for Student Athletes and our advisors on campus um, to make sure that students are in the right classes, the right degree programs, that they're making prog progress in those degree programs, all of that kind of stuff. And what happens if a student changes their major, how does that impact the certification? Yeah, it depends. I mean, we obviously try to um, make sure that we 
are aware <laughs> that the um, change is going to happen so that we're not caught off guard. So we have a lot of um, guardrails in place to make sure that students aren't just changing their majors without us knowing. Um, and part of that is being able to evaluate on the front end um, what the eligibility status of a student would be. So usually if they're changing from a, a closely related degree program, so maybe from sociology to psychology, those are pretty similar, at least here at LSU, degree programs. And so a lot of the courses will go for both. Um, and so that'll be fine. But if a student's going from uh, sociology to engineering, <laughs> that could be a totally different situation. And so we, you know, it's up to us to evaluate. And it doesn't mean that the student can't make that change, but it means that everybody needs to be aware of, you know, where this puts them, where they were, you know, a student athlete could be nowhere near the benchmarks for, um, you know, sociology, but if they're going to change to engineering, they may need to take summer classes now in order to be eligible for the next semester. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're doing all of that evaluation on the front end so that nobody's surprised um, when it comes time to for grades to come out and to do all the certification, all of that kind of stuff. And so um, a lot of the work that we do is proactive just to make sure that students, if they want to make changes to their schedule or changes to their degree path, um, it doesn't mean that they can't do it, but we just all need to be aware of what the eligibility implications may be um, for those changes. Now, a lot of people don't understand how detailed this process is. How often do you have to certify student athletes? So really, I'm just certifying them twice a year. So at the beginning of the um, fall semester and then at the beginning of the spring semester, those were really the two times that we're looking. So after grades come out um, for the fall and then after grades come out in the spring or maybe even the summer. So we're um, we're really certifying before those major semesters begin. But there's a whole lot of work that happens in between there of making sure that students are um you know, that we're evaluating their courses, making sure that the courses and the degree programs match up. Um, and I will say the academic advisors are doing a lot of that work because um, they are having the daily contact with the students. Um, but when I see those reports come through that document the changes, um, you know, we jump into evaluation mode. And how many student athletes do you have at LSU? I've got about 550 student athletes at LSU. So that's 550 student athletes certified at least twice a year. Yes. 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 That's the and type we're of volume. At, you know, certainly, and it depends on the sport. There's different rules. You know, obviously bowl eligibility is different than um, regular spring eligibility um, for football. So during uh, bowl season, we're looking at that for football. Postseason eligibility for um, usually after the spring semester for like baseball, softball, track, golf and tennis, where those sports, their championship seasons extend past the um, when school is out usually. And so their postseason eligibility is going to be different potentially than their um eligibility for the next fall or even maybe what their eligibility was for the spring. And there's been a lot of talk recently about name, image, and likeness. How do you think that will impact the academic achievement of student athletes? 
I think the jury is still out. It's so new. And, um, you know, to be honest, I don't work with it on a day-to-day basis like my um, colleagues in compliance do. I mean, from what I see, I hope that it encourages students, more students to stay in school longer since they have that opportunity to um, earn an income in addition to the education and um, cost of living benefits that that at least scholarship student athletes would be eligible for. Um, I can see potential distractions for students where they're, you know, now have this kind of other obligation or or want um, that could potentially take them away from their academics. But I also know that if a student wants to succeed in school, they will find a way to make it happen. And so, um, you know, I I hope that it will be a positive, um, but we're in our first year of it, really. So I think the the jury's still out on, on what the long-term implications will be. I know it's been exciting to watch and to follow our students and the opportunities that they have. Um, but I know it's tricky. <laughs> to so, be determined. Yes, yes, definitely. How important are relationships in this industry? And we're coming out of a pandemic for two years. How should aspiring athletic administrators develop them? Yeah, relationships are so crucial. You know, and I would say three of my past four jobs um, were based off of relationships that I had made years before where I met somebody at a conference and just stayed in touch with them. Um, uh, When I was here at LSU, um, uh, I was hosting faculty members for a a guest coach program with baseball where we would bring faculty to the games and um, hosted a faculty member who ended up moving up into administration and then hired me as the um, certification officer like five years later, four years later. So just, um, you know, I think some relationships obviously develop organically through the work that you're doing and the places that you go. But then other times you have to manufacture those relationships where you're where you are being um, intentional about these are people that I see who are doing the work that I want to do or who are doing the work at a high level that I do. And so you have to intentionally um, manufacture that relationship where you're reaching out and maybe it's a cold call or a cold email um, where you're saying like, Hey, you're, you're doing great work and I admire the work that you do. How can I get connected? Or, you know, can I, um, can we schedule a phone call? And so, um, you know, I think you have to be intentional about, about that. And even if the, the start of the, the relationship is organic or you meet at a conference and you're just sitting next to them at lunch or, you know, whatever, you still have to be intentional about continuing that relationship with with reaching out to them and um you know congratulating them on accomplishments or or when they um you know if their team does really well in a tournament or wins a championship um, that you're reaching out and um certainly that's easier to do now than ever before with social media where you just send a quick note or or whatever but um you know, and I think relationships are crucial to get your foot in the door, but there is no substitute for being able to drive results, creating high quality work. Um, you obviously have to approve or prove that you can get the job done no matter who you know. And so, um, but relationships can be critical to getting that foot in the door um, and to learn more about the industry that you're pursuing. And what's been the biggest sacrifice that you've had to make in order to be successful in your career? 
Yeah, this is this one's really prominent because I'm just this is my first week at home in the last month. So I spent three weeks on the on the road um, earlier this month. And so um, or over the last month. And so it's certainly living <laughs> um, close to my family and friends and and being at home. So um, I have a fiance that, you know, I didn't see for the better part of <laughs> three weeks um, being on the road. And for the last um, like 20, almost 20 years, I've lived about eight hours or more from my family and friends. And so that has been um, definitely the hardest, the hardest part. Thank God for technological advances like FaceTime that allow me to see my family and, um, you know, see my niece playing t-ball that, you know, without being closer, I would never get to see that. And so, um, you know, I think part of it is, is now that I'm back in the South too, I think when I was living in Ohio, um, people in Georgia, they were like, that's so far away. Um, and I moved to Baton Rouge and people were like, Oh, thank God you're back in the South. I'm actually farther away from home in Baton Rouge than I was in Ohio, but you know, at least being in the SEC, my family and friends, they're like, oh, when Georgia comes, we're we're definitely coming to Baton Rouge, or aren't you coming to Athens, or aren't you coming to Atlanta for the championship, or whatever, so it does provide more opportunities for me to get home and see my family and friends, and just, you know, for instance, that, that trip that I was on over the last three weeks, we had an event in Atlanta, and I got to, you know, have dinner with one of my best friends and, and my parents and um, hang out with them, but the family and friends has definitely been the biggest um, sacrifice. Resiliency is so important in this business. What's been your biggest mistake and how did you overcome it? I mean, I think I've been um, blessed, lucky, however you want to call it, where there's nothing that I have done that's been so catastrophic to to me or my career um, that that stands out as like this happened and this was huge. I think the mistakes that I have made, thankfully, I've been given a lot of grace to be able to work through the mistakes by my um, supervisors and and the people that that I've been working with. Um, I also just don't operate that way where I dwell on the mistakes. I, I think everything that I've been through um, and that have I've been a part of have been opportunities to learn and to grow and to, um, you know, learn more about the work that we're doing, learn more about the students that we that we get the opportunity to work with. And um, then when you know better, you do better. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's not really one thing that stands out, but I think that that's a, um, you know, thank God for grace <laughs> to yes. get me through it all. <laughs> yes. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to a young Becca when she was mm. starting her career? You know, I think the things that stand out to me in my career, you know, I think I've done a lot of the right things. I don't want to say it's been perfect, but, you know, I've always been one of those people where no one will outwork me. No one will ever outwork me. Um, and I've had that mindset. And I think that's carried me a long way, <laughs> a long, long way. Um, where I think I could have done something different is I was so focused on athletics that I didn't see the bigger picture of higher education. And I would say that, that, you know, now, particularly knowing the opportunities that I've had outside of athletics and serving as a, as an administrator in higher education. Now, I wish I would have learned more about higher education earlier in my career and even started my PhD 
earlier in my career. Um, I went straight from undergrad to master's. I loved school and I was good at school. And then I took like a 15 year break <laughs> between that and starting my PhD, which has been not the easiest thing. But when I was working in athletics, there weren't a lot of people who had terminal degrees, you know, who who had PhDs or EDDs. Um, and I, I, I didn't see that and didn't see the opportunities really outside of athletics. And so I think that I would, um, the advice that I would give would be to be more open-minded and to learn more about higher education generally. Um, and then certainly to to keep going with education. I mean, we, I, I don't want to say I ever stopped learning, but I think that formal education is really important. And, and um, I do wish I would have started the PhD program sooner. Well, I know that you're going to finish it. I know you Ooh. will. What motivates you to keep working in the higher education space? Ultimately, this is so easy because it is the opportunity to assist students in bettering their lives, um, being able to impact their families, our communities and beyond. You know, I think, um, I, I know, I strongly believe in the power of education and the power of education to impact a student's life. And so, um, you know, we have the opportunity as administrators to create the conditions on our campus that can help students to be successful that allow them to earn the degree, chase the championship, do research, whatever it is that students want to be involved in, have those internships. Um, we have the ability to create conditions that help students to be successful. And so um, being able personally to be a small part of those stories of the students that I get a chance to interact with, that's an incredible opportunity to come to work every day and to get to be a part of. And so that's, uh, that's exciting. So you get to use your experience to help others get prepared for their experiences. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. I mean, I can, um, you know, from the athletic side, I was a student athlete. I transferred. So I have that experience to help with our transfer students. Um, and then just my experience on a college campus, I think, is is valuable to people. And, um, you know, the work that I've done over these 20 years in higher education is um, hopefully valuable to, to the students. And sometimes they just need a hug. And for me to be there to to be that person for them of just caring about students and the work that they do and helping them to achieve their goals and dreams is important. Thanks for sharing that information. Now it's overtime. Book do you think aspiring sports administrators should read and why? Um, so this is a book that's probably not going to um wouldn't just be for sport administrators, but I think there's a lot of transferable information. So it's be called it's called Becoming a Student Ready College. Um, it's by Tia Brown McNair and uh at all, I'll say, and I think about five other five other authors with her. Um, originally came out in 2016. I think they have a second edition that's set to come out this summer. And so, um, you know, I love this book because too often we put the lack of student success on the student, that they're underprepared, that they don't have enough money to stay here or to be successful and get the resources. They don't have the motivation to succeed in the classroom. And what I love about this book is it really turns that conversation and puts the responsibility on the administrators at the institution to create those conditions for 
student success. Um, it talks about who the students are who are entering our colleges and universities today, um, that how we should take a look at our um, policies, practices, our university culture, um, and how it helps or harms students. Um, and some encouragement on being bold enough to make the changes at the university that will enhance the student experience instead of creating those barriers. And so, um, you know, I think that it has a lot of transferable information for people who are going into athletics. And certainly if they're going to be working with student services, academic advising, life skills, those type of things, definitely great um, transferable information. What app can you not live without and why? So I'd say if, if I if I probably went through my iPhone, my my most visited app would probably be Twitter, just because I like to stay up to date. I like the quick bits of um, information, just consumable. Um, but also TD Ameritrade. I have gotten into stocks um, over the last couple of years. That's a pandemic project. Was uh, stocks and so. Young people, please invest early and often um, and build that wealth for yourself. And so looking at my TD Ameritrade app is something that I do regularly. Yes, your older self will thank you. Amen to that. Yes. And speaking of Twitter, what social media site should aspiring sports administrators follow? So I definitely think Twitter, just because you can get a lot of information in those consumable bites, but definitely LinkedIn. It's um, an opportunity to follow people that you admire in the business, find out about job trends and, and trends in the industry. Um, you can follow conversations on broad topics, um, on seeing how how different pieces are the interconnectedness of the world of athletics and higher education in, in my um viewpoint, I guess, and, uh, and even beyond. What inspirational movie do you suggest young professionals watch? Ooh, I definitely love, love going to the movies, but I'm going to go back to an old one, Rocky four. I just love Rocky four. Um, just, you know, Rocky's an underdog the whole time where he's, you know, he's lost his best friend, um, to this enormous human, um, Ivan Drago and, um, but he's the underdog and he's fighting in the face of Im seemingly insurmountable odds. Um, but he's putting in the hard work, which I definitely connect to surrounding himself by people who support his goal and his dream and who loved him and were just in his corner, um, both literally and figuratively, I guess. And so, um, yeah, I, I can get behind Rocky for all day. What is your go-to inspirational quote? Uh, definitely always come back to Luke 1248. To whom much is given, much is required. I know that I have been given a lot in my life. Um, I, you know, I talked about my parents who invested in me all along the way. Most, a lot of people aren't lucky to have that. Um, a slew of educators and mentors and, and friends and family who have um, supported me at every step. Um, the opportunities that I've been given um, and or earned professionally. Um, you know, they've all contributed a lot to my life. And so to have the ability to give back that required, that we are required to give back because I know how much has been given to me and how much education has impacted my life. So I always come back to Luke 1248. 
It has been so great to talk with you and catch up, but mm-hmm. I refuse to believe that you've been working for 20 years. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, I agree. We won't tell people. <laughs> Marlon, it's so good to catch up with you as well. This is a, a great, um, great venture for you, and I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of it. Uh, thank you so much. Continued success for you and LSU. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.